Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of a live event held in July 2020. It's a discussion between literary critic and journalist Jason Steger and Pulitzer Prize winning author Richard Ford about Ford's new short story collection, Sorry for Your Trouble. A quick reminder, as this event has been recorded live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. Here's Jason. Um, Richard, thank you for your time today, and thank you for um, the new collection, um, Sorry for Your Trouble, which is uh, a wonderful collection. In, thank you. Um, in your little book, your, your essay that you wrote about Raymond Carver, you talked about fiction as a sorting through consequences the past impending on the present and setting into sometimes astonishing motion the future. In a sense, that's what you're doing with the, um, with the stories, aren't you? Well, it's probably what I'm doing all the time. You know, I, 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 I sort of inherited the notion of what fiction can do, not, not what it need do, but what it can do uh, from my, my betters, mm. from the people who I, read and who were around me when I was growing up. And hmm. that was what Eudora Welty and William Faulkner were writing about. And to some extent, Flannery O'Connor and a lot of Southerners where I was from at the South, um, how the past impends upon the present and in some ways um, forecasts the future or at least uh, causes the future. So that's, that, that's just, I guess that's just the paradigm I in, intuitively, intuitively chose. Um, mm. There could be other paradigms for what fiction does in its, in its arc, but that's, that's the one that I guess I just felt most comfortable with. Um, other, other writers would do it differently. But as a consequence, there's nothing, um, there's nothing certain about your fiction, is there? There's full of ambivalences and uncertainties as, um, in, in one of the stories, I think it's in, in um, uh, I can't, oh, I forget which, which one is it. It's when in Displaced, Henry Harding says towards the end, wouldn't it be better if, um, if life was simple, if only life could turn out to be that simple. Yeah. Um, and that's, life is never simple for your characters. Well, thank goodness, because if, if it were much simpler than it is, we probably wouldn't need these stories or novels or, 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 or anything. Um, I mean, um, who, who knows why one has the worldview one has, but my worldview is basically that, yes, things are this way, but they could have been another way too. Mm. And um, maybe we, we didn't have much to do with why they went one way or the other, but the way in which we can implicate ourselves in our own lives and the way in which we can actually achieve some kind of sense of moral integrity is to, when things go this way or they go that way, we take responsibility for it. And I, and I suppose if my, if my stories, novels too, have any kind of ethical, any kind of ethical sort of ballast, it is, it is, that we take responsibility for the things that happen to us. Mm. Uh, I mean, not craven responsibility necessarily. Sometimes we only take responsibility by, by admitting that things happen. But mm. I mean, my, my sense of what fiction's news is, is that it tells us what causes what. 
and, and in the course of the stories that I write, um, the narrators of the stories are the people who are privy to what causes what, whether they accept it or not. So, so in that sense, uh, each story is also a voyage of discovery for you as the writer. Well, absolutely. But I mean, in every way, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, most of the time, I, I don't want to say I don't know what's going to happen, but I can almost say I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I have a bunch of material, which is sort of raw material, things that I would like to make happen on the page. And when I put them together in that kind of Ruskinian way, which composition is the arrangement of unequal things, I, I then cause one thing to cause something else. And, and that's always for me sort of new ground. If, if it's not always new ground for someone else, it's new ground for me. I'm having... Are you, are you having problems? No, I'm not hearing. I'm you. having a few problems, yes. Are you, can you hear me? We, I we can, can now, yes. Yeah, we not can hear you, Jace. We can hear you. Okay. Now Jason. I have Christine. Yeah, uh, Jason. Name on Christine, yeah. and I don't have. Maybe I should just. No, no, you're good. You stay right there, Richard. Jason, oh, are you right. good? I'm getting an internet unstable message, but that seems to be all right now, though. Yeah, it seems that that's coming from yours rather than us. So don't worry, just keep going through. I'm right here all next right. to you, though. All right. So it could be me. I'm quite unstable. <laughs> Richard, um, the. Um, the types that, that your characters you write about in, in, in the new collection, very different from, um, from the characters in Rock Springs. But is there, yeah. you know, they're, they're much more affluent, they're much more, um, they all, they're all Democrats, they seem to be. Um, they are all, is, is there a Richard Ford type, do you think? I, ho I, I hope not. Hmm. I, I, I really would love it if a person could read a story of mine and not have the slightest idea who wrote it, mm. um, that would make me think that I was actually not just repeating myself or un uh, would make me think I was maybe uncovering new, new, new things to write about. Uh, I, I never liked the notion that, that you can always tell a Raymond Carver story or you can always tell an Ann Beattie story. I, I think that first of all is not true. Mm -hmm. And even to the extent that it is true, it's not a virtue. Uh, I mean, you get older, you notice different things, you speak over the course of your writing life, mine, you know, 50 years, with different voices. I mean, all of us have within ourselves, you, me, anybody, we have different voices that we try to use to persuade different groups of people. So the fact that we have those different voices uh, is, a, is a, just a, you know, a nutritious part of oneself that you can use for fiction. It, it's, 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 not, it's not a failure of ourselves. My, no. my wife, whom I, whom I love and have lived happily with for now 56 years, she, she would sometimes say to me when we were kids, I would say something to her and she would say, that doesn't sound like you. You know, all husbands have said that to wives and all wives have said that to husbands. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you. But I would always say, well, then you're going to have to uh, uh, learn something new about me then, because that's what I said, and that's how I said it, and that's what I mean. So yeah. we all do that. So, so Richard, how do, you, how do you find the voices? How do you find the different voices? Because there are so many different voices in your stories. Yeah. Oh, you know, 
what is it out in the world that makes us think that what we're hearing is authentic? And I, I actually think that we, we, are, we ourselves hear so many voices that are coming in our ears, which represent various degrees of authenticity. I mean, I mean f- fiction is basically mimetic. I'm, I'm imitating something. So I'm probably imitating something that I heard that sounded authentic. It, it just so happened that when I was 37 years old, I hit upon a voice, which was Frank Bascom's voice, which, which seemed authentic and which seemed to accommodate uh, all of the things that I could try to do and be um, trying to do. And mm-hmm. so I stuck with that one, but it certainly by no means, as, you, as you're suggesting, Jason, not the only voice that I can speak in. I mean, uh, I mean it's, it's, it's a little bit like ventriloquism. Mm-hmm. You know? We might come back to Frank, I think, later. But we need to talk about the stories. And one of the, obviously the, the distinctive thing about the stories and, and the content is, is the influence of Ireland. Um, yes. What, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times since publication, but, but Ireland, what, why has Ireland informed the stories so much? Well, for, for completely practical reasons and not, not you know, you know Many artistic effects start off as very nuts and bolts kinds of kinds of experience. Um, my grandmother was from Ireland. My grandfather was from Ireland on my father's side. I didn't know this until I was in my forties. Nobody ever talked about it, so I was so I was sort of without any Irish sense at all until I was in my forties. But then, when I was in my sixties, Trinity College asked if I would come and teach in, in, in Dublin. Mm. And because I'd been going over to Dublin back and forth, just flogging books. And I met a couple of people and a couple of people talked to, to a couple of other people and they said, would you like to come over and teach? And so I said, oh boy, would I ever? Mm. So I, I just removed myself and went over and, and lived in Dublin and, and taught at Trinity for a while. And in the course of teaching at Trinity, I just learned a lot about Ireland and I would go to Ireland a lot. And I met writers and I met not writers and I met critics and I met journalists and I met people who lived in towns and it was simply a, and the accretion of that rather you know easily got experience that made me think that well you know now I know something here I've, I have this little cache of information maybe I ought to try to make something out of it but but I by no means was I trying to pass myself off as Irish hmm. or pass off what I knew as the quiddity of Irish existence. It was simply a convenience for me to create a kind of a backdrop for what I wanted characters to do. I mean, if I'd gone to Lithuania, if I'd gone to Gabon, I would be writing Gabonese stories instead of the Irish stories. <laughs> but it isn't, I was in this story, Leaving for Kenosha, um, the, the, the father takes uh, the, the protagonist, his daughter, Ginny, to the dentist. Yes. And, and when, when he picks her up, um, the dentist says, um, a loss becomes its own elemental presence, which is the essence of Beckett, if you don't mind your dentist being a reader. And in a sense, that also applies to you, I thought. The, the, um, the, 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 um, the loss becomes an elemental presence in all these stories. The, the past. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the lost husbands and wives and, and children and... 
Oh, absolutely. Mm. That's exactly right. I mean, um, um, when, when I was trying to write an essay, um, a memoir about my parents, mm. I, I realized that, that when I set about to write about my father, I had to cope with the fact that my father was mostly absent from my life because he was working away from home. And yeah. I thought, well, how am I going to, how am I going to fill in what I don't know into this life, which I attended and which was important to me. And I came to the conclusion that his absence was a presence. And I know that may seem a little facile, but it, it, even if it is facile, it rendered up to me something to say, you know, writing novels as the, as the poet Richard Hugo says, writing novels and writing stories and writing poems, is just looking around for something to say. And, and, and try to say it in a felicitous way and use that privileged relationship that you have with the reader to say something to the reader that will be to her or to him important. Mm. It, it wasn't that I thought, yes, I have this message I have to deliver. No, 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 no probably nobody does that. Yeah, because it, and, uh, talking, about, talking about your father in the story Displaced, which, which starts, it starts with, um, or in the first couple of paragraphs, the, the, the boy says, when your father dies and you are only 16, many things changed. Yes. Now, your father died when you were 16. Many and things I changed. I remember you saying once that had he not died, you probably would not have become a writer. Oh, there's no doubt about that. He would have stepped on. He would have stepped on my aspirations for sure. But I mean, he would have stepped on them in a completely loving way. Mm. He would have. He would have stepped on them just because he would have been worried about what was going to happen to me, and that I was so feckless as I mm. certainly was. Um, and, and he would have got me. You know, he would have got me channeled into doing probably what he did. And, and because I didn't have much aspiration and certainly wasn't very accomplished at anything at age sixteen, I would have probably gone gone along and done what he said. I, was a, I wasn't that much of a rebellious kid, but because he left life when he did, then there was, a, there was one fewer of them to look after me and to tell me what to do and to give me guidance. And so um, I was left a bit on my own. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a little cold-hearted, but it isn't cold-hearted. It's just simply telling the truth. My yeah. father left at a time which was pivotal for me. And by... Uh, his departure, I was left on, to my own devices. This happens mm -hmm. to kids all the time, I think. Yeah, 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 no, I think it does. But it, I mean, I suppose, and, it, and it, the effect is obviously, the impact, the emotional impact will vary from, from absolutely kid to kid, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so without him, you wouldn't have, with, with, without his death, arguably, you wouldn't have written. Um, and the first, the first books, the first, you wrote a couple of novels and the first short stories. I was wondering about short stories, about whether they are in a sense more demanding than novel. Um, no, 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 just put that completely out of your mind. Uh, there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's, there's nothing more demanding of a novel than, than a novel is, which isn't to say that it's hard. Hmm. And if it was hard, I couldn't do it. Hmm. And, you know, so, Writing, writing a short story is like twirling a plate on a stick. Once you learn how, once you learn how to do it, it's not that hard. It's only one stick and only one stick and one plate, you know. So, but writing a novel is like having twenty-five sticks and twenty-five plates. 
So, no, it's, 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 it, their, their effects are wonderful effects of stories. And, um, yeah. and I, I love them, obviously. I love them. I've written about them and, and, and written a lot of them. But as far as just the avoir du poids, no, there's no, there's no comparison. <laughs> I'm, I, whenever I read you now, Richard, I'm never going to be able to get that image out of my head of a twirling pipe. <laughs> and possibly, possibly when, when the next Frank Bascom novel comes along, <laughs> that image of you with 25 twirling pipes. <laughs> well, I hope it won't be my... I mean, I'm 76, for Christ's sake. It better not be much longer till that book comes out, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, talking about Frank, you, you, I gather you are... Um, you're in the midst of, a, of another Frank Bascom novel. Yes, um, yes. To be called... Be mine, is that correct? Be mine. Yeah. yeah. It's a. Uh, I, I don't know if you have these little these little sweeties. That are you are you silly enough in, in Australia to celebrate Valentine's Day? Oh yeah, it's huge. Well, well, well. <laughs> in, in America, when we when we observe Valentine's Day, we give each other little little heart shaped sweeties, little yep. candies, and, and stamped upon them, they say, "Be mine," and so. That's that's where that comes from. Do you still give Christina one on on Valentine's Day? Oh, I give her one all the time. <laughs> so, is it? I mean, I do remember also you saying when you started writing Independence Day that you were you were sort of surprised by how easy it was to get into Frank Bascom's voice. You were actually quite shocked by that. Is it still just as easy? Yep, it is, and that's probably the thing that keeps me doing it mm. because. Um, and, and by easy, what I mean is um, that, that, that into Frank's uh, um, interior and into Frank's speech and into his moral universe, I can pretty much put anything that I think is important mm -hmm. in his voice, but by which I mean his, his diction, his uh, vocabulary, uh, his, his tone, all of those things accommodate really well and easily all of the things that are important to me and that I think could make a good novel. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a nice vessel in a sense. And that, that vessel, and, yet, and when I started writing, when I started writing um, Be Mine, which was in right after the lockdown started, I, I wasn't at all sure that I could make that happen again. I mean, I don't take anything like that for granted. Just because I did it four times doesn't mean I can do it five. <laughs> so, um, so, but I, but I, I have found that I can, I can once again transact or negotiate the world uh, in his voice. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be a good book. It doesn't mean that its structures will make any sense or that it'll be interesting. But as far as just writing sentences hmm. is concerned. Yeah, that that's available to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, a, a there's a story in the in the new collection, um, Jimmy Green, 1992. Yeah, which is set during the 1992 election. Jimmy Green is in Paris. Uh, he's a Democrat. He's he goes to a bar to to uh, watch watch the results. It's the it's the Clinton election. He encounters a. Um, he encounters a, a very aggressive Republican <laughs> who beats him up. They are all very, they're all very aggressive. You know that. <laughs> so are you, I mean, obviously you, you come across as, as a, a Democrat, I think. In, in, and I just wondered how, can, how worried are you about November? 
terribly, terribly worried. I probably wouldn't be worried if he hadn't gotten elected once. Right. Um, I mean, normally you would think to yourself, well, this cluck can't get elected, but he did get elected. And so if he got elected once, he could get elected again. Mm -hmm. And um, he's much more potent now than he ever was, at least in terms of his arrogance, in terms of his sense of omnipotence. So um, uh, I'm I'm worried. I'm not as worried as, as maybe some are that he won't leave office, which is the latest sort of scuttlebutt running around America now that he'll be defeated but refuse to leave. I, I'm not very worried about that. He doesn't like being humiliated like that. He likes being humiliated, but he doesn't like being humiliated like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm really just mostly worried that people, that, that he'll get elected fair and square. Yeah, that's that's the part of it that just because we have this loony system of, of of electors over here, where it's not just a popular vote. We have this nutty system from the 18th century called the Electoral College, which yes, is, yes, yeah, which which allowed him to be elected with a without getting the most votes. Mm-hmm. So um, that worries me. Nothing else beyond that really worries me. But that could actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to going back to your writing, I mean, you know, that, that is the political aspect comes in very much in that Jimmy Green story. But um, you said um, a moment ago that you're now 76. Mm. Edward Said um, wrote something about um, artists' late style, you know, the changes in, 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 their, in the writer or a composer's work later in life. And he... I think he um, referred to Yeats and Beethoven and everything. And I wondered how, how is your writing, how has your artistic work changed as you have moved into, shall we say, late middle age? <laughs> Thank you very much. Ed, Edward was a friend of mine, by the way. I, I knew Edward pretty well. Yeah. Um, he, was, he, he was very vain, so you can bet this, that he's a very handsome man, you know. Yeah, yeah attractive human being. I'm sure when he was saying that he was sort of, he was sort of laying the groundwork for something about himself. But um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, this, 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 speaking of vanities, um, you use up a lot of stuff over the course of your life, a lot of stuff that was available to you, your past, or just the stuff that came providentially to you. So, so, so that is, that has been exhausted in a sense. But but I don't, I don't really find that there is a, a paucity of things to write about. Mm-hmm. I don't find that, that fewer things interest me um, than ever interested me before. I, 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 in other words, I guess in a blissful way, I, I don't notice any difference at all. I mean, I still play squash. I still, really? I still go bird shooting. Yeah. Yeah, I still ride my bicycle 30 miles a day. Yeah, I, and so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not at a... I'm not at war with aging because there's nothing you can do about that. But, but really and truly, I sit down here at this desk where I'm sitting now every day and um, I don't notice any difference. I mean, somebody who is a critic uh, could tell me what's different. Mm. Somebody who, you know, studies things like that. But for me, it doesn't feel any different. Mm. Uh, I don't feel any less vigorous. I don't feel any less... Um, enthusiastic about writing sentences and rereading sentences and rereading sentences. Do the sentences come easier though? 
they, they come the same. They yeah. come the same. I wish I could say something profound about this, but I, mm -hmm. I, I really don't have anything to say profound about it. I mean, I just do what I do. I have my protocols for getting words onto the page, and the protocols seem to work for me. And yeah. Again, it doesn't mean they're worth a damn. They yeah. might not be worth a damn. We'll find yeah. out. I mean, I, I wondered, you know, specifically about sort of cho choosing individual words. And everything. There was a, a phrase you referred in, in one of the stories, you referred to somebody as having um, restless teeth. And I just reckless, got... In, re reckless, reckless teeth. Reckless teeth, that's right. Reckless I thought that was a delicious, delicious phrase. You know, something <laughs> being described as reckless. I, you know, it was just gorgeous. Um, if you lived in New England, you'd see that a lot. Oh, really? <laughs> And can I can I go back just finally go back to the Jimmy Green um, story, yeah. which um, Jimmy Green ends up by being thumped by um, by a, Rep a Republican, irate Republican, um, sucker and, sucker punched actually. Yeah. Now he says, and afterwards he says, getting 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 busted up really felt not so bad, almost pleasant. I remember, um, I remember talking to you <laughs> when you were when you were over for the Adelaide Writers Week, and you said that you actually quite enjoyed getting into fights in bars, and yeah. you didn't really mind if you got your ass kicked. Well, I didn't. I, I don't know that I say I didn't mind. I I I think I minded, but I was always shocked that it 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 didn't hurt as much as I thought it would, and. I didn't feel as terrible about it happening as I had thought, you know, as convention tells us we should feel, that we should feel defeated and demoralized and wounded and all that stuff. Sometimes I've been wounded. I mean, I don't do this anymore. I'm really beyond that, I hope. Uh, but um, but it was, it's one of those kind of interesting things, you know? I mean, and when I say interesting, what I mean is that it's worth writing about, that, yeah. that Convention tells us that we're supposed to feel this way, that way, this way, that way. And then we have the experience and what we realize is that convention's wrong. And the discrepancy between what we actually experience and come to know and what convention tells us we should know, that discrepancy is actually worth exploring. Mm. So I, mean, I, I wrote an essay uh, in The New Yorker, I don't know now, a long time ago, called In the Face. It's, it's about getting hit in the face and about hitting people in the face. Hmm. I had the first experience much more than I had the second, but I was a boxer, I was, I was a boxer. And yep. so uh, it was interesting. I just, you know, to, to, to mine out those discrepancies is kind of another way to bring the news. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing, I mean, I remember doing a bit of boxing at school and I, I punched somebody on the nose once and their nose sort of exploded. And yeah. I was horrified, absolutely horrified. But I would be more interested to, to know how you felt when he, when he, when somebody punched you. How did it yeah. feel? I ended up in tears and um, <laughs> feeling you don't, very, you, don't, you don't have to tell that. <laughs> feeling very sorry for myself. <laughs> um, Richard, very, very quickly, Frank, you're going back to, to Frank. Um, does he, I mean, Frank must, is a very special character for you. Does he live for you outside the books? No. No. No, uh, only, well, he, he lives for me in this way, that I write things in my little notebooks that I have hundreds of yeah. that I think I can make him think or say. 
Right. So there, there is that, that sort of extra, I don't know what you call it. It is an extra literary because it's purely literary. There mm. is that sort of extra book sensation which, which uh, attaches to things that I negotiate out in the world, which I then funnel into my sense of what Frank might say. Yeah. So, in a, so in a sense, I'm, I'm always sort of on the lookout for something or, or listening for something that, that I can make him think or make him be or do. Mm. Um, so, but I mean, you I mean, you know, you know, I think this, that the, the, the characters aren't real people. Yep. Characters are pieces of artifice made of language. And so, and so since, since as a dyslexic person, I'm very attuned to all of the extra cognitive parts of language. Um, Frank really lives in words for me. He lives in the way words look and the way they sound and the way I hear them. So um, um, that's, that's kind of extra literary in a way because it's the way I negotiate the whole world. Right. Right. So, Richard, when can we um, look forward to Be Mine coming out? Well, the book is due uh, uh, about a year, a year and eight months from now. And I'm, if I'm lucky, if, if I keep at my business um, and don't die or something, then I'll um, uh, probably get finished sometime between, <laughs> between then and now. Um, yeah. It's going along okay. Uh, I just had a little bit of a hiatus where I had to get in my car and drive from Maine to uh, Mount Rushmore because part of my book takes place in around Mount Rushmore. So I, I reached a point in the progress of the book that I really needed to kind of bone up on something and right. go out and do extra sort of in media rest kind of mm -hmm. research. And so I yes. just got finished doing that. Mm -hmm. Richard, thank you very much. It was lovely to talk to you again. Oh, it's nice to see you. It's really, yeah. really a great, great, great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for uh, doing this with me. It's an honor. Yeah, well, the honor was mine, I assure you. Okay. Bye-bye. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.